Okay, I'm just going to share this morning what was what God was putting on my heart for my for where I'm at in my particular situation, and it's so incredible the way He brought it. And then when I uh, talked with Mike before uh, we got together with others, same thing is on His heart, and and so I'm just going to read from John <clears throat> at 21, and then I'm going to just read from uh, Philippians uh, the second chapter. So John 21, and we know uh, j- just we're going to read from 15 to 18, but just, just in, the, in those first verses, you know, we can see how you know, Peter and all the other disciples were in a completely backslidden state. They were just com- completely backslidden. And of course, when we don't go forward in trust and obedience, the only place we can do is go back. And they went back to their regular occupation, and instead of their occupation being Christ, it became what they used to do to supplement the occupation with Christ. It still didn't stop him. In all their, you know, their deceit, and all their, the accusations of the enemy that were coming against them, oh, you let the master down, you forsook him. In Matthew 26, 56, you all forsook him. Peter, you lied, you warmed your hands by the fire and denied him after so much love that he bestowed on you and and truly what he was to you, what he meant to you, regardless of your own failures and and all your past sins which were dealt with by him. Then the enemy would come in and accuse them. And then for their present trust, the enemy would accuse their past sins and bring them up again so that they wouldn't go forward trusting that same love that not only dealt with their past, present, and future sins, and God forbid that we should, but he dealt with it all. <clears throat> and so by that time, we see we see Jesus in John 21, and I am going to start at verse 12. And Jesus said unto them, and this is what he's saying to us this morning, and this is what he spoke to me this morning after a night filled with with the projections of fear towards me personally about my situation, just filled. Uh, Jeremiah 20, uh, uh, verse 9 and 10, you know, verse 10, all my familiars, they speak unto me, saying, fear, fear on every side. And that's the enemy through his invisible evil army of demons that come against us and project constant fear constant fear towards us. And those are all the familiars. The familiars are, he wants us to get familiar and say, this is who you are. This is why this is happening. And God is going to deal with you through legalism. He's going to deal with your flesh through the, le- through, through the law and through legalism. And you're going to pay for what you did. And that's why he said, you know, Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, I, I'm not going to speak in your name anymore. I'm not going to, because you let me down by sight. You let me down. I'm not going to speak. But you know what? His word was in his bones, it says, as a fire in his bones. And he was weary with forbearing, staying in that particular place. He couldn't stay there anymore. But you see what was causing it in 20, verse 10. All his familiars. All these projections. You know, in 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 11, there are many voices in the world. 
and none of them are without significance. There's, a, there's, there's, there's an effect that, that's behind it. But we have the one voice in John 10, 3 and 4, in John 10, verse 27. That's the one voice of our shepherd who never, ever, ever, and we can't know it enough and we'll never come to the end of knowing this until we're with him in heaven face to face. We, he will never, no, never, no, never in any way in Hebrews 13, 5, a triple salutation, a personal voice to each of us. I will never forsake you. Joshua 1, 5, I won't forsake you. So be strong in verses 9 and 10. Be strong and not only be strong for yourself, Peter, in Luke 21 31 and 32, and I can put my name there, and any of us can. Simon, Simon, Ed, Ed, Mike, Mike, Harrison, Harrison, Jadiel, Jadiel, whoever. Satan has desired you that he may put you in his sieve of many voices and shake you violently. But all God uses that for is to separate the flesh from who we truly are. We have the wheat. The wheat is, is Jesus in John 12 and verse 24. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. The enemy wants us to live alone in the fear and lie that somehow we have to pay for what he already paid for. But that's Christ. He was talking about himself in John 12 and verse 24. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it will buy, it'll abide alone. But if it dies, it'll bring forth much fruit. We're his fruit. We are Jesus' fruit, and we cling to him. We cling to the wheat that he is and not the shaft, the flesh that he dealt with. And so the enemy comes in, and of course, we've said this before, and, I, and God brings it back to our remembrance, like he spoke to Israel, even in their evil, backslidden state. They were still his choice. His choice was not based upon their performance. His choice was based upon his love for them, and not that I should live in sin, that grace may abound, in Romans 6, 1 and 15, and God forbid, but he still never leaves and forsakes those that are his, never does. The lie is in some area or some voice through a projection and a lie says he, he will. And he makes, he makes those giants like Goliath. And remember in 1 Samuel 17, you read it, uh, Saul gave, when, when David had to enter into a battle and, he, and Saul gave him, and Saul gave him, uh, not Saul, excuse me, Jonathan gave him all of his armor. Or was, was it Saul? I think it was Saul. <clears throat> gave him his armor and it didn't fit him. And nothing will fit you and I but Christ and our own design and what we have to face. We put the armor on in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24, and we get renewed in 4:23 in the spirit of our mind. And if we have a little more time, we'll go into it this morning, but the reality is so intense. But, <clears throat> but that giant was Goliath. Picture him. It's approximately nine, nine feet, six inches tall, and he's screaming at God's chosen people, and they're cowering. And here's a little shepherd boy, and he learned behind the scenes how to deal with the enemy through the lion and through the bear. And what a type that is when we look at it. He had a shepherd's sling. 
He had a bag and five stones were in it. And that speaks of the grace and truth that Christ is. And it only takes one stone to put in a sling. And the sling is absolute faith and dependence. And while that, that enemy was yelling, fully armed, Goliath was not only 9'6", screaming, not only nine foot six, but screaming with armor on. But yet he took that one stone, and that stone we know is our foundation. It's Christ in Matthew 16, 18. He's our foundation. He took that one stone and, slant, and, and by pure faith, not by his feelings and not by the voice that was coming towards him, he took that and slung it in the only place right in the midst of his forehead, and down he went. Then he ended up cutting off the head the enemy. And that's what Christ has done for us on Calvary. That's what he's done. That's what he had to tell Peter. And that's what he said in John 21 and verse 12. Jesus said unto them, and he, say, he said it unto me after a night of intense fear. I got up and he lets the enemy do this. He does. Because we, we said the other day in Psalm 23 and verse 4, he, he prepares a table for us. And while we're on the run and the enemy's chasing us, screaming, yelling at us, all these lies and these fears and these doubts, he's prepared a table. The tent is wide open. He runs in there and the enemy has to stop short. Can't go there and watch Christ seated with us and feed us. And this is what this is here in John 21 and verse 12. He says to each of us, and we all can put our name there, come, come, don't hesitate, come and dine. Feed on me, feed on me, feed on me in John 6, verse 30, right to verse 57. Feed on me, the true manna, feed on me. And none of the disciples dared ask him, you know, who are you? Because they knew, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and he took bread and he gave them and the fish likewise. He's fulfilling John the sixth chapter, obviously. He's fulfilling literally when the communion. When we talk about the communion in the Bible, in Matthew the 26th chapter, and when we talk about it in the 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, those chapters where it where it talks about communion and Paul is addressing the church. That's what it's talking about. Something that Christ has finished and we just keep receiving and dining on it and keep receiving it. And that places us in a proper, a proper place of absolute worship, just worshiping him. And I experienced that today in all my weakness. I, I could just finally just, I just put my head down and just worshiped at his feet. I could, I just worshiped there. And so he took that, and again, even in verse 11, when he told Peter, you know, what to do, what to do with it, what to do with the net, he told him what to do, and that net spoke of his capacity. He told him where to put it. It's always on the right side, but Christ is seated in what he has for us. He put it on the right side, he said. But this time, remember in Luke, the fifth chapter, in verses 7 through 10, that net when he, when, and he contested with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus told him what to do, and Peter was telling him, based upon his own skill that even Christ gave him as a fisherman, we were out all night, don't you know that we did? And he said, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let the net down. 
It was so filled that it broke. Even in that sense, okay, that, that speaks, that speaks of, of kingdom truth. Some will and some won't. But this net didn't break because this is all of who we are in Christ. And the net, he drew the net to the, to the land and there were great fishes and 153, for there were so many, yet was not broken. The net, our capacity in Christ, the increase is not broken. And that's, that's the lie from the enemy. No, no, nope. Then Jesus came in verse 13, took the bread, gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus came to his disciples. Listen to this. After that, he was risen from the dead. I mean, what does it take for him to convince us and convince me? He's not going to leave me and he's not going to forsake me. He just isn't. And he's not going to do it with any of us because he was risen from the dead where everything about us that could separate us from him and him from us was left in the grave, and that's baptism, death. And then out of that came a life about who we are in Christ. And so when they had dined, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, son of John, do you love me more than these? I remember sharing this a long time ago. And I read a lot of different uh, you know, commentators on it, and some would say, some would say, uh, do you love me more than these, these other disciples? Or do you love me more than these fish? And honestly, I, I, it, it probably is printed and written somewhere else, but I, I just haven't read it in just my particular life anywhere. But it was like God told me in my own life, Ed, do you love me more? Will you make more of my love for you that dealt with all your failures? And that's what he was telling me. Do you love me more than these? Do you? And he said unto him, Well, Lord, you know that you know that I love you. Then he said unto him, Feed my lambs. God Almighty, only God could do that. What well, it's just a miracle. And then he said unto him again the second time, Simon, any of us can put our name there. Do you do you love me? And each time he's saying this. The Greek word is phileo, do you love me? And Peter, Peter, do you love me? And it's phileo, do you have this affectionate love for me? In other words, what he was saying to him is, and it's what, it's what Martha was operating in while Mary sat at his feet and was receiving self-sacrificial love, agape love, his love that actuates even our love in us. And that's in Luke 10, 38 to 42. But here, that's what he was saying. You love me with an affectionate love, but you're making that the issue. And how many Christians do that? God Almighty, how many times have I done that? How many times has the enemy come in and accuse us? Say, yeah, you have an affectionate love, but you know what? You don't have a self-sacrificial love. No, he did. God is love. Right, Harrison? Love is not God. God is love. God is love. And then he said, feed my sheep. Now, he's still not going to be able to feed him. He's still not going to be able to feed. He, he, he'll still fall short of the way that 
God, that Christ wants him to feed his sheep. He still will, but he's still telling them, you keep doing it. Feed my sheep. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? And Peter was grieved <laughs> because he said unto him the third time, do you love me? And the love that Jesus was saying was, do you love me with this self-sacrificial love? <laughs> Agape. That's why in the Bible, it's never charity anywhere, by the way. It's not charity. Okay? It's not God's not doing, a, doing something, you know, because he wants to help us. Okay? He's doing it based upon himself. There's not an ounce of our performance in it, in it at all. But the enemy will tell us, obviously, make us accountable, <laughs> like we could be. Well, son of John, do you love me with a self-sacrificial love? And Peter was grieved because he said, you know, basically he said, you know, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you only with this, this affectionate love. I don't, you know, I do. And Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. And then this is what he said to him. And this is what he said to me about my particular thing. And I mentioned the, the first thing with Mike, and I don't know how many years ago. It's probably 10 years ago when my first deep thing I was with him. And, and then it's in my second deep thing where I'm in now and where I've shared with him privately. He said this in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say unto you, when you were young, you girded yourself. You thought you could take the word and think apart from me you could still do it, that you could still understand it that you could still function in a proper image, to think that you could do that. And all it was, apart from me, in intimacy with me, leaving your first love in Revelations 2-4, all it was was cold theology, something the enemy could use to come in and deceive and accuse you. When you were young, you girded yourself. In other words, you thought you could take the word and, what, and thought you knew it enough to gird yourself Oh, God. And you walked wherever you would, and then you had your own plans based upon what you could do. But he said this, but when you're old, and boy, am I old, and boy, am I clad. You're old, you will stretch forth your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you wouldn't even go. It would be too much. You couldn't do it. But you, but we need to be carried. And that is the self-surrender. Self-surrender. We need to be self-surrendered and enter into the triumph of a personal image and a finished work based upon the person and work of Christ that he's accomplished for each of us. For each of us. The victories that he already has on us that were one in eternity, that he came to, to manifest in time and in our time. And then he shows the way that these victories are obtained. We want to bypass them. We do. You know, it takes, it takes far more grace. It's a far greater manifestation of his glory and our blessing to not take us out of the most fearful situations, but to lead us right through them. Because then he's going to lead a bunch of others 
And that's what he was telling Peter. He said in Luke 22, 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, Satan has personally desired and got my permission to sift you violently in his sieve. But I have prayed for you. You know, Jesus' prayer was not that Peter would not fail. Of course, he wouldn't want to, but, but that his dependence continual on that love, the performance of his love would not fail because 1 Corinthians 13, 8, his love never fails for any of us. It just doesn't. He said, and then when you're strengthened, convert, you will. I will use you with my son in you fully. You're empty and now you're filled with him. Now you, you pour out. Now I will use you to convert like I can do it. You me and you as a vessel, me through you, will convert the brethren. That's what, and there's where I'm carrying you to. That's the place you don't want to go, but that's the place of deepest intimacy. And that's what the enemy doesn't want for us. But anyway, again, so when we don't trust God, when we don't, Right? The enemy for a Christian, he brings in the law. He won't make it known. He won't make it known to us. But he'll use the law to condemn us. Because whoever could fulfill that? In Exodus 23 to 17. Then he gets us entering into Deuteronomy 4 and verse 1. If you do this, you'll live. If you don't, you'll die. See, you didn't do it. Now you fear, you're going to get it. See? But you know something? But Christ speaks a totally different language to us. Oh, we have the voice of a shepherd. And that shepherd says, I loved you so much that I, I not only want you to receive everything I accomplished for you, but I want you to receive me in the depth of, your, of the image and intimacy that I've made you to be. And so we have this free gift, and it's a constant life flowing down now from a risen and glorified Christ, sovereign above everything about us in time. Everything. We have eternal life in 1 John 5.11. We have that eternal life that's in us. And see, the law, I remember preaching this years ago, you know, um, we can, be a, we can be, be a believer we can be like little boys and girls, but like I can be a little boy in the house brought up in the things of Christ, but then I can go out and play. I can go out in the world and get dirty. And then I come in, when I come back into the house, the enemy doesn't want me to look into the law of the spirit of life in Romans 8, 2, and 3, and in in. in in, in James 1, 19 to 25, to look into the perfect law of liberty. He wants me to look into the mirror of the law and all it says is you have a dirty faith and face and it doesn't do another thing. But you know what Christ, you know what Christ does? I, I, you hear all about Christianity and where I see that, and if I see it, I'm studying it and I mark up all these books and notes and things. When it says Christianity, I, I just underline Christ every single time. Because there's no Christianity without Christ. We have, you and I have an object. That's something the law never gives. Can, it can't. He not only fulfilled the law 
In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, crossed every T, dot every I, finished it. In Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them that believe. He not only fulfilled the law, but he went way up and above over it, far in a height that was unreachable only to him. But that's where we are. That's where he's located us because he's our object. We have an object now with, a, with that life and we can be occupied with him in Luke 19, 13. And then we have a center, no longer. We have a proper center and around which our affections, the affections of that very life can circulate around us. We have a model, we have a pattern. We have a pattern in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. We have that pattern in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4. We have that pattern. We have that model around which our experiential life can be formed. Not a false form in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, but a proper form, that proper form in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13, there's no shame at all. Not an ounce of shame. He's not ashamed because of what he's accomplished. And it didn't have a thing to do with us. It's so hard for us. You know, it didn't have a single thing to do with my performance. It just didn't. Both he that sanctifies and them that are sanctified are all of one. Wherefore, he's not ashamed to call us brethren in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. But furthermore, he will join with us. What I can't even imagine in 2, 12. For all eternity, he will join with us. <laughs> In praising God. In singing praises to him. I, it's just incredible to me. The fulfillment, obviously, in, in very many portions of Psalm 22. But again, this is our gain. We already have the gain. We have the increase in John 3.30. It's just in our experience. The self-life has to be, what? Decreased decreased, and we experience it. When we have Christ as our experiential life, when, we, when he's our object, when I have a proper object, now I have a proper center. When I have a proper center, now I have a proper model. When I have a proper model, now I have a proper formed, properly formed image. And when I have that, that gains all the triumphs. In 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, we're more than conquerors in Romans 8 and verse 37. We're more. Then what that does in us, what it does in me, and what God's continuing to do in me, is it brings a victory and a conquest over the experience of a selfish nature in a selfish world. We have a self-sacrificial love. It gives divine Life. We have a divine life, a divine center, and a life that moves around that center. And when it does, we're taken out of self, fear, doubt, worry, anger, anger. Oh, oh gosh. In my experience with this, the enemy through fear, honestly, and then bringing in anger, anger. And then fear and anger constantly. And then in comes the word. It tells me again, see, I'm going to carry you. But I can't in your experience until you understand the secret of self-surrender. 
You need to, you read, you read Philippians, the second chapter. I well, won't have time to get into that, but you read uh, Philippians, the second chapter with John 21, 12 to, to uh, 18 and so forth. But that's a secret. And I want to I want to bring this out and then we'll close. And then, and then we're going to turn to Song of Solomon and, and a beautiful, and Song of Solomon's very beautiful. I mean, Christ is all through Song of Solomon. You take him out and you get a bunch of foolishness. And there's some that would do that too. <sighs> but here, even in the first chapter, Song of Solomon, first chapter, here's the Song of Songs. And this is the song that's going to be sung in eternity in Revelations 5, 9 through 12. Where we'll all be circled around his throne. It'll be Christ. And we'll be saying, worthy is he. Worthy is the lamb. See, and that bastard can no longer lie and say, see, you're not worthy. Because that's never a question with him. Is Christ not worthy to bring me into himself, which he's done? That's the issue. Is Christ not worthy? And so Song of Solomon, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon, yeah, which is Ed's, which is Mike's, which is Harrison's, which is Juddy L's, which is whoever is a believer in Christ, let him, in verse 2, kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, it's better than anything. It's irreplaceable. And so now we see, we see this, in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and verse 14, it says, Oh, my dove. That's who Christ was. He was innocent. He never sinned, yet he dealt with it. He never thought of himself. He only thought of his father and others. He was very innocent. Oh, my dove, you that are in the clefts of the rock, and that's us in Christ. We're considered that. In the secret of the stairs... It's not the secret place. The secret of the stairs as, as we grow up into our position in Christ experientially. We're growing up. Let me see your countenance. And we keep seeing his countenance of his love and in our growth and our experience. And we're getting higher and higher. That thing that I feared, no, come up, keep coming. You're, you're above it. My son's above it. I don't want to face it, God. I'm, no, don't listen to the voice. You keep going forward. You keep going forward. Let me see your countenance. Let me hear your voice. Not the liar's voice. Again, 1 Corinthians 14, 6 through 11. For, your, for sweet is your voice. It's irreplaceable. Sweet is your voice. And your countenance is absolute beauty. So let us take the foxes, and that's the flesh. The enemy wants to actuate the flesh. See, again, because the energy of God's nature, the active energy of God's nature is love. And out of that comes the purity of his nature and it's light. And that's who he's made us to be in him. We're children of light in Ephesians 5.8. We're children of light, not of the day and not of the darkness in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 and 6 and right through to 8. We are. And so... Let us, t let us take the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. The enemy wants to spoil the reality of who Christ is in us and who we are in him. That brings into the vines. 
That brings into, as we close this this morning in John, the 15th chapter, in John 15, and this is what it says, John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And my father is the husbandman. He's the one that will prune the areas. He prunes it in our experience of unbelief and doubt and fear and worry and everything. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. Thank God. Fear. There's no fruit in that. And every branch that bears fruit, he continues to prune it. And we think it hurts, but it's to cause growth in us and fruit to come out. And, and, and he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean. You're purged through the word which I've spoken unto you. It separates, and, and that brings in Hebrews 4.12, the word that separates the soul, the fear, the doubt, the worry, and brings us out of a self-conscious fear, doubt, and worry, and brings us into the full consciousness in our spirit and the very countenance and image of Christ towards us and who we are in him. And abide in me, continually abide in me, and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you continually abide in me. I am the vine, and you are my branches. And he that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, apart from me, separate from me, in your experience, you can do nothing. So let us take in Song of Solomon 2, in verse 15, those little foxes, those little lies, the actuation of the lie to get us to function in the flesh that spoil the reality of a proper image. Christ himself in our proper image. For our vines have tender grapes. We are so frail. We're so frail. But you know, in verse 16, and this is very personal. It's what he was saying to Peter. It's what he's saying to us. My beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. (laughs) That's the cross life. Resurrection. The lilies that bloom except the corn of wheat fallen to the ground and die. It abides alone. But if it dies... Boy, it brings forth the beautiful scent of the accomplishment of the person of Christ, his very life and his very work that's in us. And we're so thankful. So thankful. We're so thankful. So the secret of self-surrender is the fact that that experiential life that's ours cannot be reached in any other way. The unconverted man, the unconverted Christian, finds still, as a believer, without truth, without intimacy, still in the law, still finds his center in himself, in the self-life. And hence, to try to tell him not to be selfish is you're telling him not to be at all. How many times when you preach the word, people, sometimes people think it's against them because the enemies convince them in the fleshly self-life that that's who they are. So for you to preach that, you're telling them not to be. But thank God, thank God, we don't have to, we don't function in a wrong order. We function in his full thought. Because the full thought of God in Isaiah 55, 8 through 11, is higher than ever. Higher than our thoughts. This whole personal thing that I am in the midst of, constantly, I keep, he keeps having me refer, re, rehearse, not my thoughts. 
not my thoughts, your thoughts. Not this person's thoughts, not that person's thoughts, your thoughts, Lord, your thought, your thought. And when I have his thought, Christ, I have a proper image. And so that's how high, and his word will go and finish it, just like he said in Isaiah 55, verse 11. It'll go and finish right where he's called you to go to. And it's, again, it's in Ezekiel 12 and verse 25. So thank God we have a right order in 1 Corinthians 14, 40. And thank God we no longer are we thinking in self to try to promote our own self-interest, which always leaves us far short, far short. Thank God we have an object, each of us, and a center that's outside of ourselves, Christ alone. And he alone is our supply. We have that gospel of the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. And it's the only thing that can effectively constantly meet our one singular need in Philippians 4 and verse 19. And when it's met, now I can do in 4.13 of Philippians, I can. I can do all things through Christ who makes me mighty, who makes me powerful. And thank you, Lord, that you're separating in my own personal life as we close in this prayer. Thank you for separating from me the selfishness that belongs to the self-life and that, you're, and that I don't have to live as an unrenewed man living for myself with all my fears and doubts and competition and whatever, but I can live in you free in Galatians 5.1. Thank you for your precious word this morning, for your beautiful counsel. Thank you for each individual this morning. I so needed them. Just like it yesterday, I just so needed to be with, with the body yesterday. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.